reading through the book of Matthew, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and I want to encourage you to follow along as you read your scriptures during the week. Just in my commute here today, about 45 minutes, I listened to 15 chapters of the book of Matthew. You can have an audio Bible. You can read it on your own. The very minimum that I ask all of you to do during the sermon series is at least read the chapter I'm preaching on. So either read it the week before, you know, as you're preparing to come on Sunday, or now read it this week. Read chapter 3. Because you have to understand, you're only going to get out of this what you put into this. See, I put in 15 chapters in my bank today, baby. Come on. I got some good, you know, some good return on my investment, and I'm going to make it rain for you all today. But you can't just come here and get my hand out from the Word. You got to learn to make those deposits yourself. How many get direct deposit for your paycheck? How many just like looking at it every time it comes in? It's like, yeah, that's right. That's right. That's what you need to do. Make that direct deposit with the Word of God. So today is Matthew chapter 3. The subject is, this is my son. This is about Jesus being the Son of God. But we're going to learn about a new character we haven't heard much about, and that's John the Baptist. John the Baptist is mentioned more in Luke. He is a cousin of Jesus. As a matter of fact, when Jesus was in the womb of Mary, and Mary goes and visits Elizabeth, Elizabeth has in her womb John. And when John, as a little preborn child, senses Jesus in the house, what does he do? He gets his Holy Ghost hand clap and moving around on the inside. Elizabeth feels John the Baptist leap. Not only is that a beautiful thing in the scripture, but it also proves to us abortion is murdering a human life, a human person. John was a person even while he was in the womb. So of Elizabeth, and of course, so was Jesus. The Bible says Jesus was a person at conception. So the eternal son of God became a human person at that conception. So no way around it. Let's be pro-life. Amen. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of Jordan, confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Just a few things I want to stop here. When it says, in those days, do you know how much we've just skipped from the end of chapter 2 to where it says, in those days? About 30 years. So know your timeline so stuff makes sense to you. John the Baptist is not a little baby preaching, and Jesus is not in a manger anymore. They are roughly about 30 years old. That's how we know that the Bible is simplifying the story. So when we look at the other Gospels, Mark and Luke and John, if we see them add different parts or emphasize different things, that doesn't mean they're contradicting. They're complementing, surround sound. Think of it like that. We have here in Matthew, he goes from, you know, Jesus being born in the Magi to now Jesus is 30 years old. He doesn't talk about him going to the temple and getting lost or rather the, the, the parents, Joseph and Mary, losing him. And then he says, I'm about my father's business. Some of you remember that. You see, Matthew takes that liberty to do this kind of storytelling. What does John do? John comes after Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John doesn't tell the earthly, earthly perspective of how he was born or his uh, earthly genealogy or any of those things or story in a manger. John starts with 
with the heavenly perspective. Verse 1 of John's gospel is, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Let's get on with it. So there's no away in a manger, silent night, none of that. Understand the gospels are each writing history, historical narrative as the Holy Spirit leads them. We see that he's known as John the Baptist. This may seem obvious to you guys, but it's good that I remind you of this. The book of Matthew is being written in 50 AD. These events have happened 20 years earlier. So what does that mean? As he's writing the story, he's already telling you what he knows so that you can, ca- you can gather up that information and go with them. Kind of like if you watch Shawshank Redemption and you hear somebody narrating in the background. It's like this person narrating already knows what's going to happen. Matthew calls him John the Baptist. That wasn't what his mother called him, John the Baptist. That's what they all knew him eventually as because he baptized people. And it says why he baptized them. He he baptized them because they confessed their sins and wanted to be in covenant with God. The next thing that we learn here in verse 2 is it tells us what John the Baptist's message was. So the first preaching message of the gospel of Matthew is this message right here. Starts with an R. Let's read together. One, two, three. Repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Is it, hey, everybody, God loves you and has a plan for your life and it's going to make life easy for you. No, the very first message in the Bible we hear from the prophet John the Baptist speaking is repent. Now you might say, well, you know, after that, Jesus must have went around telling everybody he loves them. Go to Matthew chapter 4, and you guys got to move quickly with me, okay, because I got a lot of scriptures to do. If you you miss it, that's okay. Just write down the references. Matthew chapter 4 verse 17 tells us what Jesus' message is, because he's going to get baptized. If you don't know the story, he's going to get baptized, and he's going to start his ministry. And it says in verse 17 of Matthew chapter 4, the very next chapter, from that time on, Jesus began to preach what? Repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. I think that's a good message we should preach then. Now let's go to the book of Acts, the first day of the church, Acts chapter 2. What do you think was the message that they preached the first day of church? What do you think? Somebody shout it out. Repent, that's right. Let's go to Acts chapter 2, verse 38. After Peter on the day of Pentecost and the disciples have been filled with the Holy Spirit, they're prophesying, speaking in tongues. It says in verse 37 that the, the onlookers and the bystanders says, said, Brothers, what shall we do? And then now Peter replied, What? Repent. Say it together. What did he say? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, your children and all who the Lord our God will call. And then look at verse 40. With many other words, he warned them and did what? He pleaded with them. What did he do? He pleaded with them. Thank you for helping me. And what did he say? Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Go back to Matthew chapter 3. Why have we in the 21st century left this message? John the Baptist preached it. Jesus preached it. The New Testament church preached it. What is wrong with this message? I think I know, and we're going to get into it today, that people fear man more than they fear God. And they think by trying to be, like pastors, trying to be your friend, that, that they need to tell you whatever you want to hear, and they think that's really what you need. But that's not true. If I was by the place you pay your bills and I said, all you got to do is say sorry and we pay all your bills, how many know that's a good day? 
If I stood by when you pay your, uh, your school bills and I said, hey, all you guys with college loans, just say sorry and we'll pay off all your loans. How many know that's a good day? You're not upset that you get to repent and be forgiven of your debt, are you? And in those things, it's actually you did good things. So you went to school, you bought a house, you bought a car. But think about it like this. Imagine if somebody stood in the courtroom and said, say you're sorry and we'll let you off your charges. How many know today all the jails would be empty if we gave them that choice? But the Bible says we are all criminals against God. We have all sinned against God. Every single one of us have become lawbreakers against God, and we deserve the penitentiary. We deserve hell. And Jesus is saying, I'll forgive you, but guess what? This is what you got to do. Just repent and confess. And that's the very thing we're not giving people. We're not giving them in the 21st century as Christians and as a whole, speaking in general terms now, we're not giving them the message of repentance. Because we think if we tell the homosexual to repent, they're going to get mad and hate us. If we tell the adulterer, the person cheating on their husband or wife, they're going to hate us. If we tell the teenager who's smoking pot, they're going to hate us. And so not to offend anybody, not to you know, make anybody think that we're not their friend, is we miss the entire message of salvation. Dear God, can we go back to these days and just preach it like they did? Because I want to ask you a question. Is this based on your personality? No, it's not based on whether or not you're a soft-spoken person or a bold Italian person like me. It, it doesn't matter whether or not you like confrontation or don't like confrontation. This is the message of the kingdom. And that English word repent comes from repentance. It means to return, rewind that which you are pentiful or uh, you feel penance towards. And, and the Greek word is the same type of understanding. And in Hebrew, it's used in both covenants, Old Testament written in Hebrew, New Testament written in Greek. They use the same word. And uh, I mean, the, the, the word means the same in each language. And it means to turn, to change your mind, to walk away from that thing you are sorry for. So the idea isn't for me to use repentance to keep sinning. So it's like, how many times do you think my wife wants me to cheat on her so she can keep forgiving me? You think she wants to get involved with that? Oh, yes, yeah, she loves that. Joe, she'll forgive you. Just keep doing it. She'll forgive you. Just repent. No, that's not a real relationship. So when we come to God, we're not supposed to look at repenting of our sins, something that we keep doing so we can go back out and sinning, uh, to sin to be forgiven, sin to be forgiven. We're to actually turn from the things we're confessing. Now, if you notice, it says they came from where they were at to where he was. So that's why in this church, we practice that same principle of like altar calls. If you wanted to hear John the Baptist preach, you had to leave your nice little town in the city, and you had to go out to where he was in the wilderness and come and confess your sins. That's why we'll say at the end of this service, if you want Jesus in your life, come and confess your sins. Now, you might say, Pastor, you know, we don't believe in priests that we have to confess our sins to to be saved and all of that, and that's true. But why does it say they came to him? Scroll up a little bit or go down. Yeah, there you go. Because it says they came confessing their sins. Why do we come confessing our sins to people like John the Baptist or altar workers in a church? Is it to be forgiven so they can say, I forgive you, I absolve you, go do three Hail Marys and two Our Fathers? No, we do it because we're not afraid of them. We're not ashamed and we confess it before them so they can pray for us and represent God's love to us. See, if you're afraid to confess your sins to somebody that you trust or somebody that's a leader in the church, you're really still ashamed of them. So you don't have to do it to be forgiven, but you do have to do it if you want to get over your shame. 
That's why I confess my sins to you all the time. You're my confessional. You know, you hang around the church long enough, you'll hear times that I've lost my temper, mistreated my wife. Now, why am I doing that? Am I doing that so you can pat me on the head and go, Joe, you're forgiven? No, I do it because I'm not scared of y'all. And when I say that to you, now you pray for me and you go, that's cool that you did that because, not that you sinned, but it's cool that you confess that because now we pray for you, we can help you, and you can continue to live in salvation. See, some of you are ashamed of your sin, and then others of you don't want to be accountable to go back to that thing. So you don't want to let anybody know. But if you let somebody know and say, man, I've been looking at porn, I guarantee you they're going to pray for you. And next time they see you, they're going to ask you, have you been looking at porn? See, the Bible says they came to him confessing their sins. And we had 20 people in the baptismal tank confess their sins. Now, obviously, you, don't, you, know, you can't name off every one, and it's not meant to be, you know, like something that you're proud of. Well, I did this, and I did that, and I have a picture of this. The idea is, in general terms, I've been perverted, I've been angry, I've been rebellious, and I want God to forgive me. And I want y'all to know so you can pray for me. And John the Baptist would hear that and go, yeah, you're ready. Be baptized. So John the Baptist was baptizing before Jesus taught us to baptize. This was a part of that tradition at that time to show a cleansing and a washing. One of the things that we learn about uh, John the Baptist is thankfully he wasn't wearing Gucci. So you didn't have to worry about that. If anybody's been keeping up what's going on with the Gucci fiasco, he doesn't wear Gucci, but the Bible actually takes time to tell us what he wears. He wears clothes made of camel's hair. He has a leather belt around his waist, and he eats locusts and wild honey. And sometimes we may think about this and be like, man, that must have been normal around that time. No, that was weird even back then. Okay, so the, no, nobody was like, oh, John's normal. No, they were like, John's crazy. Look at the way he dresses. Look at what he eats. And, you know, even in cultures like today, you know, I saw Salma Hayek, if I pronounced her name right, Salma Hayek, I think. She eats crickets, you know, it's like a thing in Mexico. But, like, still, most people in Mexico are like, that's gross. I don't eat that. You know what I'm saying? So, like, that doesn't mean everybody was doing this. Yeah, there were some people at that time that probably ate locusts, but the vast majority were like, no, thank you. I'm going to eat something else. So, the, so Matthew is showing us this. Why is he telling us this? Because there was nothing. Nothing about John the Baptist that would have made him popular to you. He probably smelled. He wore some dirty old clothes. He probably looked crazy because he was always eating bugs, maybe some of their legs sticking in his teeth, you know, get a little, little cricket leg up in their little locust leg. And then he probably had bee stings all over him because he's eating wild honey. He's probably swollen. You know, wild honey's where the bees are. He's taking their honey. But the Bible says they would go out to him. What it teaches us is that we can have a voice without having a popular name. See, the Bible says he was a voice calling in the wilderness. Go up to that scripture so everybody can see it. That's a prophecy from the book of Isaiah. Let's learn about John the Baptist in Isaiah chapter 40. Hundreds of years before, I, uh, before John the Baptist came, Isaiah prophesied about him. Isaiah not only prophesied about John the Baptist, he prophesied about Jesus. So it would only make sense that they would go hand in hand together. When you look at Isaiah chapter 40, we learn that John the Baptist is going to come preparing the way of the Lord. Somebody say, Lord. Isaiah 40 verse 3 says, A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. According to the book of Isaiah, who is the Lord? Well, he's Jesus in that context, but who is he? He's God. How many gods do the Jews have? One. So now we're starting to realize that God is not just the Father. He's also the what? The Son. And at the baptism, we're going to see 
The dove come down. We're going to see the Holy Spirit. The Trinity was concealed in the Old Testament, revealed in the New Testament. It was a mystery to them how all of this was going to happen. But as Jesus comes on the scene, all of it starts to be revealed. Well, in one of their prophecies, they literally had a, a message that someone was going to come preparing the very way for God to walk on the earth with them. Go to Isaiah chapter 7. Because in, in, in Matthew chapter 1, we learn that his name's going to be called Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. But he's going to have a nickname that goes back to this prophet, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. And it's going to be called, he's going to be called Emmanuel. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him what? Emmanuel. And what does Matthew actually in the gospel says? Emmanuel means what? God with us. Snap, come on. Jesus is not being created in the manger. He is not coming into existence. Jesus is the Lord of Israel. He is the great God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit, and he is making himself known among people. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3 says that John the Baptist had a message, and it was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, let's go back to verse 7, because now he's going to tell us how that was really preached. But when he saw the Pharisees, how, uh, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said, you brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the what? The fire. Thank you. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and what? Fire. Thank you. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn, the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable what? Fire. Look at this message from John the Baptist. Let me just tell you who he's preaching to first. If you go up to the notes, these are the same ones on the app and everything. Pharisees and Sadducees, both Jewish people, similar to like Protestants and Catholics can be considered Christians. The Pharisees were not like these sinister guys that, uh, you know, always had evil intentions. The Pharisees were actually a group that started about 400 years before this, and they were the righteous guys. They were the revolutionaries. They were the people that really fought for religious reform to get idolatry out of Israel. But sadly, by the time Jesus came on the scene, they were hypocrites. And they had let their traditions overshadow the things of God. The Sadducees, on the other hand, didn't believe in a resurrection or a soul. That's why they were sad, you see. And there's your pastor joke for this year. And that's why I will never tell pastor jokes again. Because y'all don't like them. And I'm not good at them. So they were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. They actually just believed God created the human race to exist in one life, and that was it. So they didn't believe in any soul, any afterlife, no angels, no spirits. So everything about them was political power, money, and wealth. 
Now, I want you to notice this. I got links. You can study more about it. But I want you to notice John the Baptist's message of repentance in those verses because that's how we should preach the message of repentance. What is, and please just highlight the sections if you could as I go through them. What is the first part of his message? He calls them names. The literal first thing he says, you brood of vipers. So let me just help you understand our church a little bit here. Let me help you understand my method of preaching. It comes from the Bible, not from self-help books, okay? So if you have never been to a church before where they call you names, you haven't been to the right one yet, baby, because I get my instructions from the Bible, and the first part of John the Baptist's message is, you brood of vipers, he called them names. Now, in our 21st century culture, we think we're better than that. You know, because we teach our children in kindergarten, don't call names. That's not nice. But listen to me. Niceanity is not Christianity. We're not in kindergarten anymore, people. We're here in the real world. And sometimes you've got to describe what people are doing with names. And so I'll do that here. So don't get offended. He said, you brood of vipers. Now, here, let me just blow your mind a little bit. What do you think it meant to be called a viper in that time? If we went back in that time and said what a female dog is, don't say the word, what a female dog is, A, B, they probably wouldn't take any offense to that because they don't know our cuss words. Can I blow your mind here for a little bit? That was John the Baptist cussing. If I said, you bees, you guys would go, I say, you vipers, not so bad. I go into their day, you bees, what's that? You vipers. <sighs> he said, what? Cover the children's ears. This is church. You see, what we have done is we have taken away the edge of the gospels and the words that they're speaking. We think when they're saying vipers, it's just like saying, you cottonhead and any mongin. No, 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 no. When he called them vipers, it was like, you bunch of bees. Yeah. You say, man, I thought we weren't supposed to cuss, Pastor. Well, what is a cuss word? Let's just talk about that for a minute. A cuss word is a syllable of sounds that get across a message. Are there certain syllable of sounds that are worse than others? No, it's the message that they are bringing. Are there times that syllables and sounds bring across uh, uh, intense messages that people don't want to hear? Absolutely. Now, some of you are like, man, I'm ready to preach right now to some people on my job. Y'all bunch of bees up in here. I'm going to tell you what I think about you. My pastor told me I could call you a bunch of bees, man. And Jesus loves you, by the way. You bunch of son of a bees. Jesus loves you. Well, let's get it straight. You calling them sons of bees, what's the point? Does it, make, does it make any sense to their behavior they're a female dog? No, it doesn't make any sense. So you're using worthless, unwholesome words. You're using words that make no sense. Does calling them a viper make sense? Yes, because they think they're so slick. They think they can get away with stuff. They think that they are going unnoticed. And John the Baptist is calling them out in front of everybody going, I know who all of you all are. I know you, and guess what? God knows you, and you're a bunch of vipers. Now, some of you might say, "Woo, that was before Jesus came, because I bet you after Jesus came, Jesus was nice, Jesus. He never did that. Read Matthew chapter 23, skip ahead, and listen to what Jesus calls them. Vipers, snakes, whitewashed tombs, children of the devil. As a matter of fact, there was no derogatory term that he could have called them. He didn't call them. He called them every derogatory term you possibly could call somebody. 
Why? Because he loved them. Yes, you should write a book. Jesus loved me enough to call me a viper. Yes, he loves you that much. He'll call you names. Because sometimes names describe behaviors and mindsets, and you offend the mind to get to those hearts because those people need to get woken up sometimes. You got to wake people up. And so here you have the Jewish community. They are so religious. They are so pure. They are so holy. And he's calling them snakes because he's saying, hey, you guys better wake up here. What's the next thing that he does? He warns them. He calls them names, and then he warns them about the wrath of God. Let's just be honest. How many churches are preaching like that? Now, are we better than John the Baptist? Like, really, is Joe Losting like, better than John the Baptist? Is Andy Stanley? Have they gotten this thing down a little bit where they're like, man, I don't got to preach like Jesus. I don't got to preach like John the Baptist. I'm a little smarter now. Come on, people. Now, does this mean we're being purposefully offensive? No. John the Baptist loved them, but he loved them enough to tell them the truth. So he warns them, and then what does he do? He threatens them. He calls them a name. He warns them of the wrath of God. And then he says, y'all better produce fruit in keeping with repentance. You better do something about your Christianity or your religion. You say you do this, you do that, you believe this, you believe that. You better show it. It better be lining up with the word. And then what does he do? He literally mocks them. You say we have Abraham as our father. Well, let me tell you something, children of Abraham. God can make them out of stones if he wanted to. (sighs) Come on, people. Calls them names, warns them, threatens them with hell, and then he mocks them. And then he tells them again about hell. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. John the Baptist mentions words and descriptions of hell more than he does heaven. All he says is repent for the kingdom of heaven is is at hand or near. He only uses the word heaven to describe heaven. That's it. He uses all of these other words to describe hell. You're going to be cut down. You're going to be thrown into a fire. He then goes further down. It's an unquenchable fire. You're going to be burned. Why? Why do they talk more about hell than they do heaven? The same thing with Jesus. You get to the Beatitudes, Jesus is talking all about hell. And really, only thing he says about heaven is this. There's many mansions there. That is it. You don't know much other than that. You have to go to Revelation to see a little bit more, you know, streets of gold, etc. Why is it in the gospel, especially of Matthew, there is this emphasis on hell and just this minimization of heaven? Can I tell you why? Heaven is important not because of streets of gold, not because you see your family members, not because there's angels. It's because God is there. And there don't need to be anything else to bribe you to get there. God is there. Go there. Now, why does he talk all about hell? Why does he describe it? It's a, as, as we go on later in Matthew, it's a place of gnashing of teeth. It's a place where the worm dies now. It's a gnawing of your tongue. It, it is a place of torment. It is a place of thirst. You'll cry out even for somebody to dip their finger in water and, and wet your tongue. Why are there so many descriptions? Because Jesus is literally doing everything he can to prevent you from going there. He's saying, you don't want to go there. You don't want to go there. If your right hand causes you to sin, it's better you to cut off that right hand and go to heaven known as lefty than to go to hell with both your hands. You don't want to go there. You don't want to go there. You don't want to go there. The devil's going there. His fallen angels are going there. You don't want to go there. That's why there's that emphasis. It's a warning. How many know when the road is clear, you don't need many signs? 
All the signs you need is what? A speed limit sign, a sign for your exit. That's, that's, that's all you need. How many know if the bridge is out, you need a lot of signs. Bridge is out, bridge is out. There's a bridge that's out over there. A few miles down the road, there's a bridge that's out. Picture of somebody driving off the bridge with an X. Don't drive off the bridge. You see, because the warning signs are plenty because they're warning you of the danger. When there's no danger, you don't need all of those signs. God's not trying to bribe you with signs to go to heaven. He's just telling you, this is the right path, stay on it. But what he's doing in the opposite direction is he is literally shining the red light in your face going, stop, 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 stop. And John the Baptist is doing the same thing. These are our heroes. And so often we forget their messages in our culture. I'm going to come back to that, but let's go back to the story. Matthew chapter 3. So he's preaching a great message of repentance that teaches to produce fruit and that God will bless them and do great things in their life. Now verse 13, it says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, alighting on him, and a voice from heaven said, this is my son. What did the voice say? This is my son. Thank you, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. few things to learn about this is that if you remember, John the Baptist said, man, I'm not even worthy to carry his shoes. As he sees Jesus, he's like, man, if I can't carry your shoes, how in the world can I even baptize you? But Jesus says, it is for righteousness' sake or to fulfill all righteousness that you do this. I want to answer every single question anybody will ever ask you about Jesus, God in the flesh, in this one verse, for all righteousness' sake or to fulfill all righteousness. Because you'll be asked questions like this. If Jesus was God, then why did he get tired? Because God doesn't get tired. And if Jesus was God, why didn't he know when he was coming back? Because God knows everything. And if Jesus was God, why did he let him kill him? Because you can't kill God. When anybody talks like that, what they are telling you is, I don't know what I'm talking about. Why did Jesus get baptized by a man that was baptizing sinners? Did Jesus have sins to confess? No. Was John right to insist that? I should be baptized by you because you're my God? Yes. But what does Jesus teach him? To fulfill all righteousness, it's proper I do this. Why was Jesus a baby and spit up? To fulfill all righteousness. Why did Jesus get tired? To fulfill all righteousness. Why did Jesus limit his knowledge? To fulfill all righteousness. Why did Jesus let people kill him? To fulfill all righteousness. What was righteous about that? God was becoming man doing what we couldn't do. He was saying, y'all messed it up. I created you perfect. You mess it up, but guess what? I'm going to come down and be like one of you, tie my God hand behind my back and show you how to do it. That's what was righteous. He was showing mankind how to live perfect because that's what he made us for. Go to John um, Romans chapter 8, verse 36, because if you think it stops with Jesus, guess what? Jesus isn't a one-off. Jesus being the perfect man now becomes the new mold on the assembly line that we get formed into so we can all be perfect like Jesus. Oh, y'all didn't say a big enough amen. That's okay. That's okay. I'm going to preach it to you. Amen. I'm happy about that because you're going to be perfect like Jesus too. That's why he came in the flesh to do this. 
We're going to back up just a few more verses there. So let's go to John chapter 8, verse 28 rather, not verse 38. Look at this, Romans, excuse me, Romans chapter 8, verse 28, Paul speaking. Some of you know this verse, right? It says, for we know that in all things God works for the what? God works for the what? The good, thank you, of all those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be what? Conformed. Come on, to be what? To be conformed to his image. Go back, sir, so they can see it. Please go back so they can see it. Verse 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be what? Conform, keep going, conform to the image of his son, get this, that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So why did Jesus get baptized? So that he could show me how to get baptized. Why did Jesus live perfect? Show me how to live perfect. Why did Jesus forgive his enemies? To show me how to forgive enemies. Why did Jesus get tired and still serve the Father and be about his Father's work? To show me when I get tired, I can still be about my Father's work. Why did Jesus allow people to betray him? And yet, like Judas, he still called him friend because Jesus showed me how to call my betrayers friends. Every single thing Jesus does as a man is to fulfill all righteousness for men and women so we can be his brothers and sisters. He now, as he raised from the dead, became the firstborn of a new human race, the God kind of race. You were born first after Adam and Eve, naughty in nature. Now you can be born again like Jesus in a divine nature. That's the purpose. Jesus is not getting baptized. Jesus is not getting tired. Jesus is not limiting his knowledge because he's somehow not God. He is doing that for the very purpose of our salvation. Go back to Matthew chapter 3. That's why he says to him, uh, to John, I got to do this. And then John does baptize him. And if you remember with Peter, when does Peter get called Satan? Peter gets called Satan when he tries to stop Jesus from going to the cross. And, and Jesus looks at Peter and says, Satan, get, uh, get behind me. Get behind me, Satan. Why? Because Peter was only thinking about it in the natural. He didn't understand that we needed to be saved in the spiritual. So Jesus was going to have to suffer in his physical body. He just wanted Jesus to be a king. My friends, if Jesus walked on the earth like Superman or as God son just zapping everybody doing whatever you want we never would have been saved we would all be still going to hell because if he was not the reality of animal sacrifice no animal sacrifice would have worked see look at this right here here is like jesus like my hand he is going to come into human history but first he's going to send the shadow the shadow is of animal sacrifice and law do you understand see it wasn't the shadow that saved animal sacrifice and commandments was never going to save you he used that as a shadow before he came in so now watch this right here as a, as a light socket or as a plug rather. See, the shadow crossed the plug before my hand did, right? The shadow came first in time, but it's only because the reality is coming right behind it. The only reason why commands and all of those things meant something is because Jesus himself was coming in the flesh. And what were all the Old Testament people doing? They were looking at the hand and the shadow and prophesying. They're like the lamb, that's a shadow of the lamb of God. Come on, the tabernacle, that's a shadow of our souls being filled with God's presence. We become temples. Oh, all of these rules that we try to keep as Jewish people, that's the reality of God's purity in our hearts. And so when we see that he's getting baptized and all of that, he's showing, watch, and I wish I could pick up my shadow and do this, but maybe put it down here, you know. The shadow and the reality came together. The prophecy and the fulfillment came together. 
the beginning and the end of all testament and all testimony came together in Christ. So when you saw Jesus, you saw the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament was trying to show you. You saw it in a person. He was the fulfillment of everything righteous. So John baptized our Savior. Amen. This is a part of his righteousness. And then what you see is like any father, he got to come out and say, that's my boy. While Jesus is getting baptized, father says, hold up, angels. Split that sky. Let me show them who that boy is down there. That's my son. And I mean, y'all like sci-fi. Y'all watch these superhero movies and dimensions and all of that. Just use your imagination. I'm telling, every, I'm telling you, everything in matter, space, and time went away, and you saw heaven shining through. And he said, that's my son. And then Holy Spirit, go out there and be with him. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. How does the book of Matthew end? Baptize them in the one name of our one God, of the Father, the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Matthew says, I know who God is. God is the Father. God is our Son, uh, the Son. And God is the Holy Spirit, our Savior and our Comforter. He's our Father, our Savior, and our Comforter. Are there three gods? No. Are there three pieces of God? No. One God in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. That's why the Lord needed someone to prepare his way. That's why the Lord was going to do these things. It's not the Father. It's the Son. Go to John 1.1. We'll see it again just so you can see it. Come on. Go John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Who's the Word? Jesus. Okay, now go to John 1.14. And the Word became what? Flesh and dwelt among us. Did the Father become flesh? Did the Holy Spirit become flesh? No, the Son became flesh. It says, He came from the Father full of grace and truth. Now go to verse 18. It says, No one has ever seen God. But hold on, I thought Jesus was God. Keep going. It says, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself what? God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. So is that a contradiction? No. Are there two gods? No. There is one God and three persons. No one's ever seen Father God, but you've seen the Son of God. Boom. Isn't that wonderful? And the same book of John in 14, 15, and 16, those chapters, we get introduced to the Holy Spirit in a theological way. In the book of Matthew, it's experiential. In the book of John, it's theological. As you notice, in the book of Matthew, you're experiencing the story with them. Like, oh, man, Mary's pregnant. Where did she get pregnant from? Oh, the Holy Spirit. And, and who's in her? Oh, the Son of God. How do we know it's the Son of God? Well, because when he was baptized, the Father said, that's my son, right? And that's how Matthew tells the story. So like I said, it's like that Morgan Freeman voice that's walking you through the story. What is the book of John? The book of John is like a teaching gospel. Let me just tell you it all right now. He's God. He's God like the Father, and he's walked among us. And then a few chapters later, guess what? God, the Holy Spirit, he's coming as well because the Son goes back to heaven to be with the Father and the Holy Spirit comes on their behalf. And so let's go back to John, or excuse me, Matthew. And it says right here that the Spirit of God has set it on him like a dove. Why is that so important? Because all the prophets had the Holy Spirit come and go, come and go. David said that he loved the Spirit of God in the temple so much that he wished he could live in the temple because he knew that his, his experience with God was always transient. It was always momentary. Now we see someone in the flesh has the permanent presence of God. But what do we see at the end of his life, uh, at, the, at the end of his ministry, before he ascends to heaven after the resurrection? What does he say? I give you the Holy Spirit, and he'll be upon you just like he was upon me. 
So what Jesus was is our example. That's who we are now. Go to 1 John chapter 4. Go to 1 John chapter 4. Somebody say, this is just the introduction. I'm trying to help you understand the Bible. Come on, amen. 1 John chapter 4. I hope that you're, you're gathering all this information, taking it in. 1 John chapter 4 teaches us who Jesus is and who the Antichrist is. And the Antichrist is the one who denies who God is, uh, who Jesus is. Now look at this. Look at what it says in John chapter 4, verse 9. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might what? Live through him. And now go to verse 13. This is how we know that we what? Live in him and he in us. He has given us of his. He has given us of his. What came on him on the day of baptism? What comes on everybody now? Oh, man, do you love Jesus? I hope you love Jesus, man. There is nobody like our Jesus. He has given us the same relationship with the spirit that he had. So get this, because sometimes people think they understand the incarnation. You know, Jesus coming incarnate, incarnate means flesh. Some people think they get it, but they really don't because you ask them, how did Jesus do miracles? And they'll go, oh, because he was the son of God. No, that's not the right answer. Because how are we supposed to do miracles? Are we the son of God? No. He did miracles by what? The Holy Spirit. And then how do we do miracles? By the Holy Spirit. That's why he said, pray in my name and the Spirit will do it. Because when I was calling out stuff, the Spirit was doing it. You have the same relationship now. And I know this is weird for us because we think of Spirit like ghost. And now Casper the ghost is our friend and we miss who the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is as much of a person as the Father and Son are. And so for you and I to have a permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit where he walks with us and talks with us and reveals to us the will of the Father and the Son, that is not make-believe. That is not silly. That is the most real thing you can ever have in your life or the most real relationship because you're a spirit, right? Like you're not just an arm. You're not just a leg. So your relationship to the Holy Spirit, that's as deep as you can go spirit to spirit. So Jesus is still resurrected with, with marks on his hands and feet on a throne. And the Father's next to him, the Bible says, Daniel 7. It's happened. It's there, right? And he's waiting to come back. But here's the deal. You do hear the voice of the Father and the Son on the inside of you. You do have Jesus living with you. And you do feel his comfort and his power. How is that happening? By the Holy Spirit a real person. And so never take that for granted. Now let's go back to Matthew chapter 3. I just want to say a few more things before I get to the message. When we see that he is called uh, God's son at the end of Matthew chapter 3, that is the crescendo of what Matthew has been trying to get you to understand in the first few chapters. From this point on, you're just supposed to take it for granted God is walking among us, the son of God. But let me go through seven indications of Jesus' divinity with you real quick. I don't know if you can keep up. Don't feel bad if you can't. In Matthew chapter 1, it says he'll be called Emmanuel, God with us. Then we're told in Matthew chapter 2 that he is a ruler, a shepherd from ancient times. That's referenced in Matthew 2, 6. The prophecy is Matthew, uh, Micah 5, 2. And that ancient times is equal to the ancient of days, as we've studied before. That's the, the, the second reference. The third reference is, is that we see the Magi worshiping him in Matthew chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. 
And that word worship is the same worship that's used in Matthew 14, when the disciples worship him. And then we realize as we go into chapter 3, and listen, there are four, the 4th, 5th, 6th, and 7th one are all in chapter 3. In chapter 3, it says, John the Baptist prepares the way of the Lord. That's the prophecy of Isaiah 43. The Lord is Yahweh. Then John the Baptist says, I can't carry his feet. I mean, I can't carry his sandals. If he's just a prophet like John the Baptist, why is it you can't carry his sandals? He has to be divine. Remember when Moses went to me at the burning bush, he couldn't bring his sandals to the burning bush. He had to take them off. And now uh, John the Baptist is saying, I can't pick up this guy's sandals because the holiness is upon it. Do you guys get it? I, the holiness is on his objects. That's why I can't touch it and be around it. And when people did in faith, like the woman with the issue of blood, she was instantly healed. That's the, uh, the fifth reference. The sixth reference is, is that he said, I came baptizing in water, but he who comes after me will baptize in the Holy Spirit. What does Joel say? Who gives the Holy Spirit according to Joel chapter 2? It's God who gives the Spirit. I will pour out my Spirit in the last days. Who's the one pouring out? God. But now who's John the Baptist the saying is going to pour it out? Jesus. Are there two gods? No. It's the Son of God. Are you with me? And then the last one is, this is my Son and who I am well pleased. Seven references to his divinity in three chapters. There's four references to his Messiahship in the first 18 verses of the book. Who is he? He is Jesus Christ. Jesus, Messiah, our Lord. Jesus Christ, our God. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. That will change your life right there. You will be saved by confessing that. You will never face hellfire or judgment confessing that. That is the confession of, uh, of salvation, that Jesus is Lord. He is our Messiah, and he is our God. Are you guys ready for the message? Amen. Let's go back to the notes because I want to help you to preach. In closing, just the last few minutes here, how to preach like John the Baptist Believing in the Son of God and this generation. So I'm going to walk you through a story that just happened on social media. Scroll uh, down the notes a little bit there, or up the notes. There you go. Start with Ellen Page. How many know who Chris Pratt is? Uh, do not click on them, please. Chris Pratt is the star of Guardians of the Universe. Anybody know who he is? And uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. Thank you, sir. You're a nerd. That's okay. Still love you. <laughs> just teasing. I'm just, I'm, I'm just upset I didn't know it because I'm a nerd too. Guardians of the Galaxy, and he also was in rec Parks and Recreation. Okay, cool guy. He's a Christian. So he's a Christian. He's a famous person. Well, he goes on one of these talk shows, and he talks about his pastor from Hillsongs. While he's in New York, he visits with Carl Lentz, and Carl told him to go on a 21-day fast, like in the book of Daniel, and he's just talking about it. No big deal. Ellen Page is the star of Juno. Anybody remember the movie Juno? It's about a high school girl who gets pregnant, decides not to get an abortion. She gives up her child for adoption. Great movie. Believe it or not, really good movie. So Ellen Page sees that he's mentioned his church and that he's talking about these guys. Like, you know, they're a cool place. She gets upset because she's like, oh my goodness, you know, this church is against LGBT people. And then he gets on Twitter and they start fighting back and forth. Let's get into their world and see how this applies to your world. Ellen Page here writes, if you are a famous actor and you belong to an organization, i.e. his church, that hates a certain group of people, don't be surprised if someone simply wonders why it's not addressed. Understand this. She's wrong about their stance of hate. It's just them calling it a sin. But is she wrong in asking this, that it's addressed? 
No, she's not. Everybody keep that in mind. What is she asking Chris Pratt to do? She wants him to address the subject of homosexuality and the belief that her church has, uh, that his church has. Let's keep going. Being anti-LGBTQ is wrong. There aren't two sides. This, uh, the damage it causes is severe. Full stop sending love to all. How many people think she was loving Chris Pratt in a few sentences earlier? No, she's being really hypocritical. Isn't that something? We're commanded to love our enemies, but they hate their enemies and still think they can be a loving person. Have you noticed that? We actually are commanded to love them. So I actually love Ellen, but she thinks it's okay to hate because I'm not worthy of her love. So like her love goes to everybody else. Though she says it's all, but it's really everybody else that you know, agrees with her. Get the context here. She's upset that he goes to a church that believes homosexuality is a sin. She is using her public platform to call him out because she wants to know, Chris, what do you have to say about it? Now, let's go up to a magazine article that wrote about this. Chris never really responded except saying that my church loves everybody, and you'll see some of this right here. And all my links are on my Facebook page when I talk about this. Despite the actor's habit, that's all that word means, for quoting Bible verses, he made sure to state he is not officially affiliated with the church as a spokesperson. So that's okay. You're not a pastor. You can't speak for the church. Okay, but let's keep going. He wrote, my values define who I am. I'm a man who believes that everyone is entitled to love who they want, uh, who they want free from, excuse me, I am a man who believes that everyone is entitled to love who they want free from the judgment of their fellow man. Stupid statement because pedophiles love the children they sleep with. So can you really be free to love whoever you want without judgment? Do you want the rapist to be able to love their victim? Because they do. Uh, do you want the people who molest children to do that? No, no, no. So this right here is about as wishy-washy as you can go, okay? So Chris Pratt, who I totally want to believe is saved, I totally want to believe Justin Bieber is saved because, you know, he was celibate before they got married and they went to the same kind of church. So trust me, I am not a hater here. I'm looking for the good and what these men are saying. But right there as a pastor, he has failed. He has spoken gibberish and nonsense. You are not free to love whoever you want to love and to be without judgment. You will be judged on how you love and who you love because love is defined by God. God is love. Jesus says, if you love me, you keep my commands. The gospel of uh, the, the epistle of John written by the same guy who wrote the gospel of John says, if you say you love God, but you don't keep his commands, you're a liar. Love means something. Okay. If I say I love my wife, but I cheat on her all the time. Is she okay to judge me? Yes. Everybody say yes. If I say I love my wife, but cheat on her all the time, am I free to do whatever I want or is she okay to judge me? She better judge me and say, you're my husband. Get back home. Now watch this. Remember what I told you. What was Ellen Page's issue? Ellen Page's issue was it wasn't being addressed. Watch what the magazine says as well, online magazine. With Hillsong celebrity members, including Justin and Hailey Bieber, who recently published, uh, publicized their choice of celibacy prior to their wedding under the guidance of Hillsong's pre-marriage course, Hillsong is developing a cult-like following in Hollywood. Isn't that how Scientology started? Now, I study cults. What about Scientology makes it a cult. And let me just help you from the first service. It has nothing to do with their doctrines because a doctrine is our opinion. So I would say, by my opinion, you're a cult. But this person's not a Christian. So, so Scientology, according to them, is not a cult. 
uh, because they don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. Like we would say Mormons are cults because they don't believe the right doctrines. We would say Jehovah Witnesses are cults, right? But this person is not a Christian. So in their mind, why are they using the terminology cult towards Scientology? We'll see how wide they're applying it to Hillsong in just a moment. But why do you think they're calling Scientology a cult? It has nothing to do with the Bible. Think about it, and I want to hear your thoughts. Think about it, and then I want to hear your thoughts because I want to see if anybody can get it. Why do you think this author of this article is obviously not a Christian? And I know you were in the first, so some of you were in the first. Don't give it away. Why is Scientology a cult? What would be the big thing that would just be like, cult? Okay, go ahead. Shout it out. Paying for their books? Good answer, but incorrect. Don't feel bad to give wrong answers in church. I still love you. Why would they be a cult? Believes in the same thing is not a cult. Otherwise, we would be in a cult because we all believe the same things. Think about it. Go a little bit deeper. You can try again. Very close to what I'm getting towards. So the way they treat their ex-members can have a lot to do with what makes a thing a cult. But if you leave the boxing ring, they're probably still going to call you and be like, hey, we haven't seen you for a while. Or you leave the gym, they're definitely going to call you, right? They want your membership back, you know? Come on, somebody else guess. Why do people in the world label things as cults? And I'll, I'll help expand this a little bit. Why was like, you know, Jim Jones a cult? Why was th these other like, you know, new age things cults? It's because of the control that they operate over their people in secrecy. That's why they don't like Scientology in Hollywood, because I've watched the documentaries. Nobody knows what in the world they're teaching at the higher levels, and they control everybody. And so when King of Queens, that woman, she left Scientology, what did they do? They tried to control her and bring her down. But what is she doing? She's exposing all of their secrets. Remember what Ellen Page said. Ellen Page says, Chris, why aren't you addressing this? What is this man saying here? Hillsongs, you remember. Remind me of Scientology. Why is that? Because you're just keeping secrets. Nobody really knows what you believe. Now, Hillsong, February 14th, breaks their silence, comes out with their statement. Are you ready for the Hillsong statement? They come to get Chris's back. They're like, Chris, we got your back. We're going to straighten it all out. Now, just give a nice little swipe from the top part to the bottom so everybody can see it, please. Let them see the whole letter. Whole letter. There you go. Now go right back to the top. Did you see any Bible verses there? This is a church coming to the defense of one of their celebrity members, and there is not one Bible verse in here. How many are already skipping ahead to my application to you? Some of you are smart enough to know where I'm going. Remember, we just learned about John the Baptist and the Son of God and how you're supposed to preach. It's coming back to you, by the way. But let's just look how not to do it. So Hillsong Church, once again, I'm trying to give them all of the benefit of the doubt. Man, maybe if I had a famous person in my church, I would feel weird writing this stance that I know is going to go on news media outlets. Okay, okay. You know, I'm trying to be gracious. Let's just see how good of a try, good of a shot. This is a church that boasts of thousands and thousands of members. That means they have college professors, Bible college leaders. You know, that means they've written books and they have publishers. I mean, this should be like the creme de la creme. In other words, sister soldier, we should be able to see John the Baptist type stuff right here. We should see it, right? These are the best of the best. We buy their music. We go to their conferences for $300, and we do all of that. These guys should be able to be like, we got you, Chris. So Chris should be able to hand this to somebody and be like, but this is what we believe. Okay, let's see, let's see. Hillsong Church loves all people. Well, quite the opposite of how John the Baptist started off his talk, but let's just keep going. 
It's okay to love, though. We love everybody. We would like to clarify and correct the following misinformation has appeared in several media uh, outlets recently. All right, they're going to clarify. They're going to correct. Okay, break down the verses. I'm ready, man. Hillsong Church does not preach against anyone or any group. Well, kind of different than John the Baptist. He kind of called them out. But anyways, we are not anti-anyone. Oh, okay. Are you anti-the devil? Are you anti-sin? Are you, well, that's another thing. We are an inclusive Christian church that loves, values, and welcomes all people, regardless of their background, ethnicity, ethnicity, beliefs, values, or personal identity. Uh, that right there, has that answered any questions about what's in the controversy? We love everybody and welcome everybody. Uh, that wasn't the question. The question is, what do you think about LGBTQ? Let's keep going. Maybe they'll get to it here. We don't preach against anybody. Now, we are also a church that adheres to mainstream biblical values shared by the overwhelming majority of evangelical Christian churches around the world and millions of Christians across the U.S. Do we know what those are? Most people don't. I Google just to do like how somebody would Google. What do most evangelicals believe? Crazy stuff. Are you listening to me? So somehow they're supposed to assume you know what they mean by that. I have no idea what they mean by that. Much less you think Ellen Page, who doesn't even go to church, knows what they mean by that? We disagree with what most Christians agree with. Okay, the Anglican church, the whole church of England affirms homosexuality. The Methodists, the Lutherans, they affirm homosexuality. They are major Christian denominations. Which one are you like? Are you like them or are you like the other ones, right? No idea what they're talking about here. Believing the teachings of the Bible and loving all people, including those who have different perspectives, are not mutually exclusive. Okay, that's cool. Love this sin. Sin or hate the sin, but still don't know what you believe in, though. In fact, this is the very definition of tolerance and inclusiveness. Inclusiveness, inclu they, you've said it twice. Isn't that the same terminology that the gay affirming church uses? We are what? Inclusive. Okay, sounds like you're saying some buzzwords, but don't know really what they mean. I don't think you know what inclusive means. We'll talk about that in a minute. Hillsong Church was founded in 1983 by our senior pastors, Brian and Bobby Houston, and all these years, Pastor Brian has been a vocal opponent of gay conversion therapy and has made it clear that our pastors, that our pastors do not support that approach. The very thing he says we are not against is what other Christians believe they do. Now listen to me. If you don't do this, this is actually an opinion on some, but a doctrine to others. And, that, and what, what the conversion therapy is basically this, is that if you are a Christian, by getting Christian counseling, you can get help. I was assuming they were doing that. The very thing he says I'm not doing is actually a rebuke towards Christians who thought they were doing something good. I'm going to say this again so I don't confuse you. I thought they were helping people not be gay and lesbian by coming to Christ, being born again, and then being taught things. They're actually slapping me. Do you understand? It's like this. It's like the world gives a hall pass to what you can say and be against. So the world's like, hey, Christians, you can be against sex trafficking. So I'll come up and preach. Don't sex traffic. It's really bad. So I got my hall pass, and the world thinks I'm good, okay? Uh, racism. World, can I preach against racism? Yeah, racism is in, so preach against it right now. So I got my hall pass. But then can I preach against abortion? Bad Christian. We're taking back your hall pass. The very thing he corrects, he doesn't correct sin. He doesn't correct anything to do with what the world is doing. He corrects what other Christians are trying to do to help the gay and lesbian community. He makes the Christian his enemy here. 
He thinks he's defending himself. He's like, and I'm not like those other crazy Christians who actually do therapy. Like, God forbid you would do therapy with a transgender identity child. You're supposed to give them the, the medication. I don't counsel them. It's illegal now to counsel in California children like that. So he's like, I don't do that. Distancing himself from the Christians who are actually trying to help people. So we don't do that. So what do you do, Hillsong? At Hillsong, we want to be known for who we are, who we are for. We are for people finding hope in Jesus. We are for people finding love and acceptance. We are for helping people in any way we can. It's repentance, holiness, the gospel. Mention the Bible verse. No, we're just for making up stuff we're for. Okay. Our focus is on pointing people to Jesus as the way. Oh, here we go. Here's, sorry. Here, here's the reference. One verse. The way, the truth, and the life. None of the other stuff right there. Uh, not that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. None of that. Just the way, the truth, and the life. No matter where you are in the world, when you enter our doors, you'll be greeted with the sign that says, welcome home. This is the heartbeat of Hillsong Church. Indeed, this is the heartbeat of God. Let me ask you three questions after reading this. And I took a lot of time because I want to help you be John the Baptist in this, in this generation. Number one, if you were Chris, Pat, uh, Chris Pratt handing this statement to Ellen Page, could you answer, the, could she answer these three questions or could you answer these three questions? Number one, does Hillsong Church believe homosexuality is a sin? Could you answer it from there? No, you have no idea what they believe it's a sin or not. Number two, number two, do they allow homosexuals to be members in their church? Most of you are saying yes. They actually don't. Isn't that something? It's the same thing in the first service. They actually answered the question positive. Now do you know why Ellen Page is so mad? Now do you know why the people writing the articles are so mad? Get this, guys. Most people are not upset with you because you believe what you believe. They're upset with you because you don't live out what you believe. They can see through you, and then they put you in the category. When you think you're being slick, say they thought they were being slick, but they got called out as being a cult and Scientologists. Why aren't they going to call me a cult like Scientologists? Because we know what Pastor Joe believes. Joe puts it in writing. Joe puts it on the Internet. Joe puts it on his Facebook. There is no onions to peel back to discover what's going on in that crazy place. You come there, you know what you get. Sounds like John the Baptist. We'll get to that in just a moment. Question number three. Do they affirm transgender or same-sex couples? No idea. No idea. Church of tens of thousands of people, high celebrity figures, high-profile figures, an entire uh, uh, thing erupts on the Internet. News outlets are covering it. The church releases their statement, and all you know is that they're going to tell you Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Mormons tell you that. Jehovah's Witnesses tell you that. The Anglican Church tells you that. The gay-affirming Methodist Church down the road tells you that. The Church of Christ right here with the rainbow on their church tells you that. You have said nothing but white noise. But now let's be a little bit smarter than the average bear. Let's be Christians. Let's be discerning. Do you think they knew what they were doing when they wrote that? Oh, yeah. They knew exactly what they were doing. And they made a choice. And I want everybody to get this. To not be like John the Baptist. They made a choice to not be like Jesus. Now, do I think they're non-Christians? No, no, no. These guys are Christians, but they are walking a dangerous line right now because they're letting the world push them and push them into a closet. The world came out of a closet, and now they're getting pushed into a closet. Let's go back to the scripture, Matthew chapter 3, in closing. Band, come, please. I want to show you how we should preach the same message of John the Baptist to this generation. Go back to when John the Baptist preaches. Scroll down the, uh, the notes, please. 
How about this? You brought a vipers? That's my statement. Y'all ready for this? Hey, everybody look up at me, please. Don't watch the band. I know they're awesome. But I want you to get this. I pray, God, that everybody gets this. How did John thank you? How did John the Baptist start it off? You brought a vipers in Hollywood. You brought a vipers. You brought a vipers. You think you're slick in the entertainment industry? You brought a vipers. That's how John the Baptist started his letter. You brought a vipers. Who warns you, Ellen Page? Who warns you about the wrath to come? Are you asking because you want to know, or are you asking just because you want to pick a fight? Who warns you about the wrath of our God? Because if you want to know, I'm going to tell you. You better produce fruit, Ellen. You better produce fruit in keeping with righteousness. Because your stardom is not going to save you. Your money is not going to save you. Hollywood, you better produce fruit in keeping with righteousness. You better produce that fruit. You better stop giving lip service to a God you say exists after you swear on the album and take his name in vain. And then you go into these movies and you do perverted things. And then you say, I thank God. You better produce fruit in keeping with righteousness. And don't you think to yourself, well, I'm an American. I can do whatever I want because God can raise up Americans out of stones if he wanted to. Well, I'm an actress. God can make an actress out of a stone if he wanted to. Well, I'm a singer. I, I can slam dunk the ball. God can could make basketball stars out of stones if you wanted to. You're nothing. You're nothing. Your power is nothing. Your influence is nothing. We don't bow down to you. We don't seek your approval. We don't care if you dox us on Facebook, write bad reviews about our businesses online. We don't care. We're not backing down. Yeah, don't say to yourself, you're just an American. You can do whatever you want because you got a lot of money. Let me tell you something, Ellen. Let me tell you something, guys. Jimmy Kimmel, the axe of God is already at the root of your life right now. And if you do not start producing the fruit of righteousness, you are going to get cut down and thrown into the fire. I love you, and I'm telling you that because I don't want you to go there. I'll baptize you right now in repentance. And I'll let the Holy Spirit come, and we will let the Holy Spirit come, and he'll give you the fire of the Holy Spirit, and your life will be changed. But you better understand this. To God, you are nothing like but a piece of chaff that the farmer takes and throws up in the air, and the wind catches it, and it goes into the fire pile. If you do not do this right, you will be blown out of the kingdom of God into the fires of hell. And that fire is unquenchable never, ever ends. That's how we preach. I'm not here to talk about churches every week and all of that. I did that because I just thought it, it had to be God for me to notice this while I'm preparing this sermon. And I just said, I got to walk them through what it's like to be a pastor. Because here's the deal. You now are called to take this message into the world. And they are not going to treat you any different than they treat me or Chris Pratt. So we better all get ready. You have nowhere to hide now. When I was preaching at Taft High School, we had about 20 or 30 students around us, and they were mocking and doing everything. And then they asked me, was homosexuality sin? And I'm like, yeah, that caused the entire place to erupt into like a riot. Am I not telling you the truth? But you see, I stood there on your behalf to tell them I love them. And then over the time period, they began to realize that I loved them. But I had to tell them about their sin. 
See, now when we go back, they're not going to wonder where we, what we believe. They don't have to try to read some statement and try to figure it out, like, what do the majority of evangelicals believe in? And what does this mean if I'm a homosexual? Can I go to the church? Can I be a member? I mean, do, do, do they do the same-sex wedding ceremonies? And what about transgender? I mean, are they cool with Caitlin? Like, you don't have to wonder. We love you enough to tell you. Why? Because we want you, along with everybody else, to repent. We want you to confess your sins like everybody else confesses their sins. Would you scroll down to the meme, please? My question to you today, the meme, go all the way down. Thank you. Is if you are here today and you are a lukewarm Christian or you have friends that are lukewarm Christians, I want to ask you this question. This question, when did the cowardly become your heroes? When did these guys writing these fluff pieces become the conference speakers? And when did the courageous become your enemy? Why am I the enemy now? Because I actually tell you what the Bible says. I don't do it to be mean. You know, I don't do it because I want you to suffer. I do it because I want you to go to heaven. And I mean, all the sins, right? Not just the big popular ones we're all fighting about now, but all of them, you know, sex with yourself, sex with somebody else's wife, sex outside of marriage. Those are the sexual ones, right? And then drunkenness. And then the ones that people don't really talk about a lot, like bitterness and selfish ambition. I love you. I don't want you to perish. But yet we're making heroes out of cowards and enemies out of the courageous. Here's what I want to say to you, and I hope you can bring this message to your friends and family. It's okay if your feelings, your politically correct feelings, get hurt every now and then because your soul's worth it. It's okay if we call you vipers every now and then. It's okay if we say you're in a corrupt generation because that's how our prophets and, and leaders preach. It's okay because here's the deal. If I offend your mind and it opens up your heart, then it was worth it because I don't know any other way except the way that's been handed down to me from the prophets and Jesus that we can describe this world. I don't know any other language to use other than you are dead men and women with whitewashed tombs. You are snakes and you are vipers if you believe this and you're trying to teach it to our children and promote it in our culture. You are children of the devil and the people you try to help become worse children of the devil than even the ones, even than you are. Your helping makes their lives worse, not better. Those are literally the words of Jesus. So are our feelings always going to like the truth? No. Like, I'm sure we could make this place really boring for our feelings. If you guys started talking about the truth of engineering and the truth of gravity and the truth of physics, it would get real boring and real quiet in this place. Nobody would be happy and excited anymore unless you're one of those guys, right? Or people, maybe no women, you know. But feelings don't make stuff true. Feelings doesn't make it true. And how many of you have had feelings towards like somebody you liked and you trusted them and you loved them, but they broke your heart? So even when you felt something was so true, like, oh, I know this is true. They love me. I know they're never going to do anything to me. How many know you, they still did? Because feelings don't matter when it comes to truth. Your soul depends on what you do with Jesus. The father said, this is my son. You have a choice to believe the father and now serve the son as John the Baptist did, or you can listen to another voice. I'm going to listen to the voice of the father. 
And here's the thing, just be patient, please, because I want you to get this. The voice you choose to listen to, you will be held accountable to and responsible for. So all those who were there that day, who saw Jesus get baptized, the Father speaking, all that, those who walked away going, I don't believe that, that's their fault. And those in this culture who hear us as voices calling out and don't believe us, that is their fault. There was a man who went to hell, and he literally said, Jesus told one parable of a person going to hell and what it was like. I mean, how much more serious could Jesus be about hell? He talked about the man in hell. He was a rich man. And he said to Abraham, can I come out of here and warn my relatives not to come here? And what was Abraham's answer? Jesus telling the parable. What did Jesus say Abraham said? He said, if they don't listen to the prophets, they won't even listen to somebody if they raise from the dead. And how do we know that was true? Because Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. They didn't listen to him. He raised from the dead. They didn't listen to him. And so now I want to ask you a question. Who here wants to get away from this lukewarm, milquetoast nonsense and be a modern-day John the Baptist and prepare the way of the Lord for his second coming? Because as surely as he came the first time, he is coming again. And he is calling out John the Baptist's to talk the message of God out there. And like I said, maybe it's not your personality. Maybe everything's not going to be a viper message. I get that. I don't always do that, right? But the point is, we're going to be loud, man. We're going to be voices. We're going to be noticed. And they may look at us and go, man, you look crazy. You wear, you wear camel's hair and you eat wild honey and your breasts stink like locusts. But here's the thing. It's not about our dress code. And it's not about our popularity. Because we don't want to be known for being the best dressed. We don't want to be known for having the most amount of money. We want to be like John the Baptist, known for our voice. It's our voice. It's the voice crying in the wilderness. It's the voice. I don't want a name. I want a voice. I don't want a big church. I want a voice. I don't want best-selling books. I want a voice. I want a voice in this generation. It doesn't matter if you're popular. It doesn't matter if you don't have a lot of Instagram followers. Will you use your voice? Will you be known as a voice in this generation calling out? Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight his path. Do you believe it? Let's get up. Come on, give it up for Jesus. As you stand up, give it up for Jesus. Amen. Band and altar workers, would you come, please?